welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's January 19, 2021, the day after the nation's official sanction of a narrow understanding of the work of Martin Luther King Jr., and the day before the country swears in a new president, the representative of one of only two parties allowed to compete for the style of window dressing in this house of white supremacy. What has changed? What remains the same? Not just over the last several years of Donald Trump, but over the last several centuries. For our answer, we offer The Plantation is Still Burning, a repeat airing of our conversation with Yannick Marshall from August 11, 2020. And as regards MLK, Yannick Marshall says that it's one of the heights of modern racism to expect that the only imagination of liberty and freedom must go through one person, Martin Luther King, who has, as it happens, been entirely possessed by white supremacists. And now, Yannick Marshall on the liberal roots of white supremacy on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is The Plantation on Fire. Our opening song is Colonial Mentality by the great Fela Kuti. Colonial Mentality. Our guest today is Yannick Marshall, and as I find all his recent essays, crystallizations of important truths about the U.S. of A., I'll let his words serve as an introduction to our conversation. This is from The Racist's Peace. In the times when videos of black people being killed fall out of the news cycle, black people are killed with impunity. In the time when this president is in power, black people are killed with impunity. In the time when this president is not in power, black people are killed with impunity. In their counter-looting, black people are killed with impunity. In their prisons, their hospitals, their streets, their police stations, black people are killed with impunity. In their riots, black people are killed with impunity. Their peace, their regular order, is a place where black people are killed with impunity. I do not wish them peace. Peace is never peaceful in a colony. The peace of the slave master is not the peace of the enslaved. The slave master finds placid the view of the masses of enslaved people working for him under the whip of the overseer. The enslaved finds peace in a plantation on fire. Them go proud of them name and put them slave name for heading of the soul. Color mentality now make you hear me now. Our show today focuses primarily on liberalism as another version of white supremacy. It has always instructed the oppressed to go slow to any so-called radical demands like equality. And while conservatism is a nightmare of activist white nationalism, it has been a liberal world order that courts the dichotomy of the good cop, bad cop racket, offering protection to the wretched of the earth, but never allowing escape from the exploitative and abusive imaginary of the liberal state. Yannick Marshall is currently assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. He writes on police power, race, white settler culture, anti-blackness, nationalism and ideology, and indigeneity as anti-colonial anarchism. Hello, 
And now, The Plantation on Fire with Yannick Marshall on Interchange on WFHB. What does it mean to be anti-colonialist? A history of anti-colonialism obviously takes in, into account many, many, many things, one of which being, you know, the U.S. as a prime perpetrator, as a colonizer. One of the reasons why I like to introduce anti-colonialism to, to audiences that don't really hear it too often is, one, because part of what the nation does, the American uh, nation state does, is it removes itself from the colonial world. It is definitely a colonizer, uh, but it's also a colony. And part of it being able to kind of extract itself from the history of imperialism um, is to think of places like Britain, in the, in the nationalist narrative, Britain, France, as these bad places that colonized themselves and colonized Africa and Asia. And America is a new chapter in world history. Uh, but of course, America is the first colony, um, or not the first, but at least one of the first um, colonies earlier than, say, Kenya colony. And so to bring anti-colonialism in its immediate relevance to this space that we're occupying, if we're in uh, this place called America, is important, one, because it's important to uh, think in terms of settler motives, settler institutions, and the settler colonial structure, and to kind of dispel the power of the of the national myth. I'm I'm largely against nations, although that's more complicated because there are certain third world nationalist forms that have a sort of anti colonial mode to it. But even those, I have a lot of, of doubts about. But the colony in itself, uh, especially the colonies that pretend to not be colonies, this one, America, has affected me quite a bit. And um, it's affecting the world quite a bit. And so if I mention anti-colonialism, very often I can draw on other histories where settlers have done things to natives, in quotes, all over the world, and to bring those histories to the present settler colonial state of America. Do you mind being a little more specific than I suppose about what settler colonialism is, although it, it certainly, I would think, almost defines itself? All colonies are kind of settler colonial colonial spaces because the colony often had administrators and I think people differentiate colonies uh, like um, Ghana from uh, colonies like settler colonies from Kenya because of the settler population, a population that is foreign or alien or basically from the colonizing country uh, that implants itself in the space of the colony and is interested in living there in prolonged periods of times, having families there and basically being uh, not temporary administrators of the place, but having a future in that space. And when they are in the colony, they end up very often changing ways of life, laws that will suit the settler population rather than the native population or the indigenous population. And what that does in the settler colony is that very often you would find um, there are more floggings, more killings, more um, forceful exploitation in production because not only do they want to exploit the indigenous population and to take over the land, but they want to protect the settler life and settler ways of life and also settler families from the savage native hordes that are always knocking at their door. And so their laws are developed with a more hostile, they were called the, the, the natives or the indigenous hostile, but their laws would be more hostile to the people because of this idea of their permanence and their absolute rule in this space. So this is obviously what this American colony is. 
it is a settler colony that has a lot of the attributes of a place like Kenya, where the indigenous people are relegated to a zone of not really being there. They're present, but also kind of absent. And the entire colony is not seen as just to be developed. Um, and they're the caretakers for the natives, but that the natives are not really supposed to be there. They're almost like an unfortunate historic relic that still just impinges on on settler life. And so the entire state works and the, so- and the society works to almost pretend as if the natives are not really there. They take certain attributes of the native and they sprinkle their names and their cultures on forest teams, et cetera, to kind of uh, gesture toward their past. But the natives serve the institution of their own dispossession, which is the colonial state. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show, The Plantation on Fire, is about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology with guest Yannick Marshall, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College and author of essays on such topics as policing, white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. In this narrative of the U.S. in particular, then we confront uh, what you call, or what many call, I suppose, a colonized people as well, which would be African Americans or black people in America who were forced here and forced into a kind of colony of its of its own. And so, so generally, there is a colonized force, a colonized group that was made into a colony on these shores or in this land that may be a little uh, confusing <laughs> confusing maybe you could do a better better job than i did there i i, I doubt i can because it is actually <laughs> a, a confusing matter one um i would think of the indigenous people as um the original colonized subject or or the colonized and i would consider uh black people i don't really often uh, think about them as colonized but they are colonized in a specific way but because your relationship to this state is different than indigenous people. That black people appearing in the settler world as settler property is a different relationship than the uh, indigenous. I think Patrick Wolf he he actually describes the different relationship between the indigenous and um, black people. Whereas um, the one drop rule uh, for black people uh, meant that because the settler wanted as much labor as possible, almost everybody could be a black person. Right. Um, because if you have one drop of blackness in you, then you're black. Therefore, you extend um, the possibility of enslaving a vast majority of people. Whereas uh, if the claim to land is what is necessary, um, indigenous people become a threat to the claim of land because their presence is a marker of a dispossession. And so uh, almost nobody becomes indigenous. And so it, the one drop rule is kind of reversed. And mm-hmm. so it is hard to claim indigeneity because people will say, OK, well, no, you have this much um, whiteness in you. So therefore... Uh, you're a white person. You have to be pure indigenous to be a real um, indigenous person because you want to make the indigenous disappear and blackness appear uh, because there's two different relationships to the exploitation of states. So they're operating in different ways. But um, in terms of the general world system of thinking of colonized peoples, the floggings, the disappearances, the programs, the things that happen in general settler colonies, uh, did happen to African people. So it's, it's all mixed up. It is clear to people, even if you go to the textbook and you try to understand the history of this particular country, that the nation erased Native Americans and enslaved 
Africans and then repopulated uh, a slave base within its own borders. So it's a very clear history of exploitation and abuse and any number of things you could say. But then they talk about all these other things without addressing any of those things, right? Then we talk about the founding fathers and you say, well, they also held slaves, you know. Uh, and then we talk about Jefferson and we, he, we say, oh, well, he, you know, he loved Sally Hemings. And we say, what does that love mean? Um, you know, what happened there that, that is something you're going to be uh, proud of? You know, all these things just begin to become defensive responses from white Americans, I would say. So I'm always trying to figure out where that tipping point is for people, where they start to understand that being colonized or having all of life be denigrated or uh, treated as a less than proposition is something that they're also responsible for by just getting the benefit of not being treated that way, I suppose. At every stage of colonial atrocity in history, and in the history of a specific um, defined colonial state, the past always operates as a way of absolving the present. Mm -hmm. So you will always find, for example, the people that were doing lynching saying, well, things have changed quite a bit from slavery, so you really shouldn't be complaining. And then you would find uh, people post 60s to say, well, we've awakened from the civil rights thing. So yes, mass incarceration is, is on the horizon, but this is not lynching. And you would expect that in 2060, if we um, finally rid ourselves of caging people, um, you might find a situation where people will say, well, in 2020, there was mass incarceration everywhere. We're not like what we were then. Um, and so the past is always going to be almost written into the, the narrative of the nation. The settler colonial state always is better off than it was. It is progressing mm. to a better place. Even if it, the evidence is expanding and it's hurting more people, it's hurting more people around the world, the past is always going to be an alibi for settler wrongdoings. So yes, um, a lot of people are being socialized into the belief that they are um, different than the, the past ancestors, even though they're the intellectual progeny of set of colonial paths. I would even suggest that it is important to start thinking of the founding fathers as primarily slave masters mm. and that their paraphernalia of set of colonialism that is the American state, the constitution, all these certain things are secondary to uh, what we need to, to think about when we're thinking about analyzing um, the relationship of forces that happen in the colony. That the fact that they were serial abusers, killers, rapists, uh, destructions of land, destruction of property should not be erased or minimized or seen as a footnote to their lives, but that they should, this should be the story of the serial abusers that um, also, in order to justify their violence, have created, for lack of a better word, illicit institution or, or justification strategy that is a state to excuse uh, what is their penchant for destroying a Black people um, and indigenous people and indigenous land everywhere. It's time for a break. This is 400 Years by Bob Marley and the Whalers. More with anti-colonialist essayist Yannick Marshall when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us. 400 years. Look how long. And the people they still can see. Why do they fight again? Fight again. The four years of 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is The Plantation on Fire, and our guest is Yannick Marshall. This segment focuses on the racism inherent in patriotism and then tackles the idea of genocide as a closed subject, frozen in European history. Yet genocidal acts are perpetrated daily and are ongoing in a colonized state. We open by quoting from Marshall's essay, Patriotism is Racist. Patriotism is imperialist and settler countries, despite labor-intensive attempts by liberals to sanitize their colony, is racist. It is racist in all countries, but it is especially racist in colonizing countries. It is a celebrated devotion to the act of wresting land from indigenous peoples. The settler's country does not exist. It is an act of dispossession, repeated day after day, which, if not interrupted, produces an illusion of being a home. Patriotism is the inverse relationship to uh, the history of dispossession, to be proud of theft, um, proud of destruction, proud of the idol of settler colonial work, um, which is the state. The state is an institution that works to the detriment of some segment of the population. It is force, it is destruction, it is vile, it is a number of different things. Um, the settler colonial state is just that much more. But the, the patriotism itself, Tolstoy called it a devotion to slavery. Patriotism in itself is slavery. It is confusing relationships among different peoples so that they are taught to throw their bodies and give their bodies in service of violence against other people. So patriotism as an idea is, an, uh, is a, a, a trick, is, uh, is something that confuses people about what has gone on to actually even create the idea of country or nation. The oldest trick in the book. The thing that struck me as you were talking is uh, imagining pride, you know, pride in the country and how that can take many forms. But it also struck me that there is an element, I think, generally for a lot of people probably about simply conquest itself. Uh, the U.S. as a conquering nation that has conquered the world. And then there are people that believe it, and this would, I assume, be a liberal perspective, right, that believes that America is a civilizing idea, uh, conquering by democracy. Um, people make the distinction very often with like uh, Roman ideas of, of the colony versus what the British kind of introduced, which is that you, you don't only occupy, but you build something. You build a sense of place, you build a sense of, a newness. Um, and so in the modern period, there are no conquests that are of the colonial type that are not at the same time positive, that do not seek to build a space. Every colony in, in Africa had colonialists that would say that uh, they've come to bring civilization, they come to bring peace, to rid themselves of these things that are odious to the, to the colony, but it would maintain the indigenous customs that were not beyond the pale of what could be acceptable to modern man. Um, so they went to fix, to build, to bring their version of democracy, or at least a quelling of native hostility and endless war, and bring civilization to these to these places. America is squarely in the idea of we are going to create a new 
history, a new place. Again, in another piece, uh, this one is, there is no relatively benign version of settler colonialism. You write, if genocide is to refer to only the systematic and intentional destruction of a people, we'll all need a term that accounts for killings that are the result of dehumanization, but can be unplanned, impulsive, or simply the result of disinterest in racially marked life. That's mostly what you were just talking about. As we have come to believe, especially liberals have come to believe with the dominant idea that genocide is the highest of all crimes against humanity. Sometimes, and especially in the uh, the modern modes of the set of colony, genocide is not necessarily the cruelest of all uh, forms of violence. The easy, disinterested neglect, uh, the killing through assimilation, the day-to-day uh, murders that do not need to take interest enough to organize into mass killings. These things that have happened sprinkled over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, these things should not necessarily be seen as less than um, genocidal practice, if genocide is not the appropriate word, but a new word or a new way of accounting for the slow, lackluster murder should be um, accounted for. And if and the reason that it's not accounted for um, is because of the fact that indigenous and black lives have just not mattered enough. And so they could not register. But if we were to, to count them up and to see that these uh, lives also matter, then the horror of the modern system would not just be a fate of, as the settlers love to say, an imperfect history, making the entire history of trauma of the Western Hemisphere just like a, a, a flaw or a blemish. That would be rubbed away and we would be accounting to see that this is a monstrous and continuous urgent um, problem that needs to be fixed rather than a mistake. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show, The Plantation on Fire, is about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology with guest Yannick Marshall, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College and author of essays on such topics as policing, white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. I've begun to be more critical of liberal perspectives that paves the way frequently for the violence of a right-wing response to a lot of these issues. But one of the things you point out in that article too, and and this is a good way to think about it also in, in terms of the disinterest or the idea that someone is uh, not human, uh, you you point up an example from uh, slave ships casting people overboard to collect insurance money versus a, a determined extermination of a people. They're both graphic examples, but one we might not call genocide. If genocide is elevated, for lack of a better word, to, to the highest crime, um, what does it mean to like, how do we think of the um, throwing people overboard for insurance money? Because that seems to be um, more than neglect. That seems to be something that would happen when humans are so solidly in the category of property that it is as if they are, they appear in uh, the settler or the trader's uh, mind as already killed or already unliving that their disposal is not in any way uh, worth noting down or mentioning, that they're already 
um, this stuff that has been killed. I've been trying to confront zombie uh, movies and, and zombie ideas over the last you know several decades and the idea of their popularity. But as you just m- mentioned, um, this idea of, 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 of people being already dead or disposable because of their already having no social life or existence that counts, uh, this is a zombie spectacle in some sense as well. There's a fear of the zombie. Perhaps this is actually a fear of you know, the dispossessed, a fear of the disposable, a fear of those particular people who have been treated this way uh, all along, walking among us and, and taking up arms against those oppressors. Even though it was assumed that they were snuffed out, there are traces of humanity, traces of consciousness that are still breathed into uh, the zombie. And so the fear that the native was always conscious and was always human has risen up and then run after these people that always are screaming and running into houses, looking at the window, just like um, the settler runs into their institutions, their homes, um, looking out the window for the native poison arrow that flies against them. This is basically the nightmare of settlers thinking that the natives um, are not non-humans, but actually people that um, will one day get them back. This is easily compared to the, the Star Trek um, phenomenon, which is like almost like the liberal colonialism, where they go out and search up places to, to explore, but um, that they always start off nice. They don't start off screaming at the uh, zombie aliens, that the aliens always just surprise them of being nefarious beings, and then they have to put them down for the good of uh, the start Starfleet Federation. I've been watching Star Trek like for the last <laughs> week. Um, so this is going off in the dungeon. But yes, that um, they are colonizing the place, but for the peace of the universe, um, yeah. rather than uh, just to destroy the uh, humans that were supposed to be always dead. I had a, a Star Trek conversation today, actually, um, based on some, uh, something similar, right? Uh, I think this is probably going around, the idea of the uh, colonizing, liberal, um, you know, boldly go where no one's gone before. You're going to where th- where people already are or beings already are. One of the things that struck me, though, and, and what you make note of here, this illusion of home, the idea of uh, the settler colonial uh, idea maybe is is homeless uh, in a lot of ways. And Star Trek, doesn't Star Trek strike you as this sort of no, having no ability to be home? There's sterility on a ship floating in space. And that's literally this the aspect that pops into my head when I think about the idea of, you know, whiteness being soulless. This is, you know, Star Trek too. The, the, the people who have no home um, and go about from place to place you know, basically ruining everything. everything. Ruining them while saying that um, they're helping. I mean, it's it's almost scary how, the lack of imagination in colonialism. Even even the um, being um, ruined at, at in space. Um, one is it's, it's Robinson Crusoe, which is the first template, but also um, it is the there are so many memoirs um, and romances of the settler cast away thinking about their loved ones at home and are because of that loss are so much more brave for facing the evil savage natives with their loved one in a locket. Yep, yep. Joy come in the morning. The sunrise tomorrow, no matter how dark the night gets. It's time for another break. This is Fire by Rhapsody featuring Moonchild. More on liberalism as white supremacist when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us. We gonna still be alright. Joy come in the morning, we just gotta last for a night. The mask came off tonight. 
Don't matter who in the big house, we gon' still march and fight Word to my people, what up? My brothers still standing strong, holding they nuts Sisters, we built tough, right? Right, yeah It's super heavy though to think about These bodies between the sheets, Ron Ozzy wasn't singing about I know the disbelief and pain that we all feeling now Why some feel the need to wanna burn it down Let's understand Ain't no fear in my heart I only fear God, feel like beast mode with the ball Word on my back, but we gon' still go super hard for you all, right? Right Do it for the children, I got some things on my soul On my soul, yeah Another hashtag in the streets, motherfuck it all Don't invest the money in a business that don't fuck y'all Look the babies in the eye and tell them we'll do better Yesterday is over, but tomorrow's still waiting for us all Yeah, sing that Sing that loud, how I go? What it feel like? Walking through the fire. All my people growing tired. Mamas fighting with their babies. They the ones that start the revolution. Crazy. Media portrayed. With lies, wanna justify how my black folk died. They don't wanna hear our cries. So we set that mark on fire. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Yannick Marshall an essayist and assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. For this segment, we begin with the way journalism is embedded with policing and is as much a fiction promoting cops as heroes as actual fictional television programs about cops. And then we'll look at the way liberal politics operates as a kind of good cop to the conservative bad cop. But each is white supremacist. Just as a parent, we living in America but ain't paying the same rent. We need progress and they still talking past tense. Where we going? Ain't no need in backing down from I do want to shift to to some recent work of yours. Um, you had a, a pretty recent one, I think, called The American Media is Not a Cop Watch Program. Uh, you say the American media takes the police at their word. And so police do not claim something happened. Their report is what happened. That's an essential point, right? That support of that reality, that idea of reality that is is more often than not fictional becomes the truth. Yeah, and it's written into the law with reasonable suspicion. The police officer is full of repression of the southern state, but it's also the priest. It's also the person that proclaims and pronounces truth. And that truth is what courts and other people, the media, etc., come together to understand, to analyze. It is the police, the, the work of the police, the pronouncements of the police is evidence, is literally evidence, but it's also like historical evidence. Yes, we have normalized the facts that we know about the past because of what police have said. But what we're really doing is that we have elevated proven uh, liars and people that have had a history, more than a number of other occupations, of being demonstrably fibbing uh, to the detriment of black lives and of other lives to regardless of that and regardless of how many times it happens and regardless of how many people are complaining about it, they become more sacred than any other uh, office holder in, um, including the president, I would say, any other office holder um, in the state. And what will it mean to have um, the people that are dedicated to or that are that have bestowed upon them uh, the power to commit legitimate violence to also be the main truth tellers? It's almost, again, too much on the nose that violence itself 
is the form of truth in the settler colonial state. It's a great little essay about, uh, again, about implicating just the the TV, uh, television programming being clearly a handmaiden of, of the state's policing arm or becoming an arm of it itself. One thing you write is, isn't just about the fictional television, but about, you know, p- reporters as well, you know, that it's, it's your national news that, that anchors come on and, and frame stories that suit the police angle. It's even, you again, call liberals to account, you know, you hem and haw and wring your hands and say, you know, violence should stop, but then you turn to question the chief of police. <laughs> Yeah, the same people that are are parroting um, activist language and saying things um, that sound like, um, okay, well, you might be on our side saying that people shouldn't be shot in the street willy-nilly. And then in order to continue our, our cause for us, you invite the police or examples of police leadership to, again, show that this is how it should be done. Even though the people have been saying um, policing is rotten from its core, it, there are the ages of the state that have a tendency or a histor- historically demonstrated disgust and uh, continuously attack black people, even though that's what people have been saying, uh, police leadership is somehow still sanitized, still saved, still become the people that we need to turn to. This is ridiculous. And what it also means is that the parameters of thought that is acceptable or that is dominant in the space of the colony are parameters that on its most liberal or its most left in dominant thought is policing. And on its most right, uh, it is policing. Uh, this is <laughs> a police state. The unconscious of the police state is so securely police pornography show um, that there is no possibility of even tweaking or saying something slightly different. That is police state culture. That has been normalized as freedom. Police are encouraged to lie to so-called suspects, or it's you know it's a, an approved tactic that you lie to suspects uh, as police, and in in all the police programs you watch, they they actually even tell you these things. You know they say, of course we can lie to. Lie. They actually make it clear. Anything you read about talking to police actually says never talk to police because one they'll lie to you, and two they'll lie about what you say. So it's one of those interesting things that on the face of it we're actually instructed that the police are going to lie to us and that they're going to lie about us, and yet they are still considered to be. Doing Doing that for the good of us. Even though the shows that are supposed to be propaganda for uh, police heroism, like Law and Order, show police doing things that are obviously illegal, um, even if, if while this is our the propaganda that we're served, we still invite uh, police leadership. Um, to our, our progressive uh, TV shows. You, you also write, in the media, the badge-wearing violent are heroes and heroines sweeping away crime with an unwavering commitment to honor and fairness. They're depicted in the same flattering light colonists depicted their pioneer forebears sweeping away native savagery a century ago. It struck me that, you know, one of the things we continued to struggle with in a lot of our uh, homes and families and our daily lives with these these clashes between uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter and the idea of Blue Lives Matter, the sort of the right-wing construction that sets police lives against black lives, right? Here is the the never-ending idea of the blue line against savagery, right? It's literally It's literally what the line is for, against the barbarians, I believe, is the line. Like, it's not on its face abjectly racist and colonialist. Which is why the poetry of policing becomes so much important because we're, um, and I'm a fan of poetry, but um, poetry has, in settler colonialism, has a very 
evil role. And I like evil because why not? And so because you can't make a rational argument, you appeal to um, the metaphors of uh, blue lives, um, uh, the, the, the blue line, um, the first responders, the people that put their lives on the line as if all lives are not always on the line at all times. All of these these phrases work in the stead of rational argument, because once you start actually thinking, well, why can police uh, produce truth or why are the people that are in a specifically strange colored clothes or sometimes uh, undercover walking around with uh, weapons, telling people what to do, that this is at the same time uh, the thing that the conservatives who want uh, liberty and small government uh, don't have a problem with. Um, or anybody that believes that there is freedom and liberty, why isn't the person that is uh, ordering you around and that has a history of violence and blood already special on their, on their clothing, why isn't that person understood to be the quintessence of, of tyranny? Rational thought will say, well, there's, there's a contradiction in, in liberty and police occupation. Uh, so instead, you don't call it police occupation. You consider those, that, those brave souls that are protecting and serving with their batons, guns, and orders. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show, The Plantation on Fire, is about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology with guest Yannick Marshall, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College and author of essays on such topics as policing, white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. We can move to reshelve civil rights because it again touches on these themes. Clearly, all these are linked in how we have to think about our, our current state or the state of the world as it is a colonized world. You write in his discourse on colonialism, Amy Cesare wrote that Europe could not forgive Hitler not for the crimes against man, but for the crime against the white man, the humiliation of the white man, and the fact that he applied to Europe colonialist procedures, which until then had been reserved exclusively for the colonies. Europe countenanced Nazism, he says, as long as it was inflicted on black and brown populations. And yes, there were genocides in the most traditional sense in the colonies on a day-to-day basis, and there were, there, there were genocides after um, 19, the 1940s. But these things do not become the evidence of the, of the atrocity of modernity or the atrocity of humans' evil. They become just certain small facts of history. But when conquering, when renaming peoples, when confining them to their destruction, when the stripping or the marking of people as evil was no longer in the dark corners of the world, but in the space of the enlightenment, in the space of life, then they become recognized and then they become uh, the shame and history of the world. It's almost as if there is no limit to the amount of people that uh, had to be uh, killed or thrown into the sea that um, we would have any recognition of the ongoing Holocaust in all over the world. It had to happen in Europe and it had to happen in a place that is considered uh, to be civilized. Genocides are just the day-to-day practice in uh, the dark continent. This is why I think terms like Black Lives Matter are so useful, because it says so much about the lack of accounting of lives and of valued Black people around the world, and how the entire way of thinking about history and to think about the different inflection points in history always seem to erase um, the histories of violence in Black people because Black lives do not matter. <laughs> 
all of this that we've been talking about, settler colonialism, um, police, uh, violence, um, you know, the, the world as it is, which seems like a world on fire. And at the same time, the word that comes up again and again and again and again in this conversation and in your writing is liberalism, which would probably strike a liberal as confusing. For me, I think, at least in this colony, since the, what they call the Civil War, we were living in, in terms of what could have been a, a liberal hegemony. So uh, it's not that I don't see uh, conservatives as the problem. I think of them as the activist white nationalists that have uh, basically had their uh, white nationalism normalized into a respectable term of conserva- conservatism. What uh, liberals do is that they put the conservative or the white nationalists or um, the racists as the bad cop to their good cop. But this good cop is what uh, basically runs the entire world, and it's their world, except for this recent, very recent moment of uh, white supremacist state capture that even uh, the white nationalist activists felt oppressed by, which is why they always speak about taking over the state. It's the same with um, the colonies um, in Kenya, where the settlers were saying that the administrate, the British administration was coddling the native wasn't wicked and wicked enough or destructive enough. And so they wanted to take over the state. They were also felt oppressed. They didn't have the freedom to destroy black bodies as they would like. Same with conservatives. Now they do not have the freedom to hurt and to dismember black people as, as much as they would like. Um, and so, uh, liberals who run the state, who run the policing and who've created the ideology and the fictions of, uh, the good and equal and non-racist states are the ones that are uh, creating the conditions of police violence and prisons and imperialism, etc. And so one of the biggest problems is having liberals uh, consume the possibility of an alternative or a non-racist or non-anti-black society by um, parroting, by being the puppet of a non-racist society. They're not the non-racist society. A radical non-racist society will look very different than their liberal, uh, loving police, uh, put them on TV shows, that type of society. Conservatives are known and are open about their interests uh, Nazism, but liberals are able to train vast majority of children and of people into thinking that they are the good guys. And it's that specific goodness that has housed so much of modern histories and especially the history of the colonies, destruction of black people that needs to be consistently attacked and exposed for its destruction. You imagine the liberal ideas of philosophy or, you know, state formation where uh, you speak out against nature, red and tooth and claw, is the imagination that the liberal state will protect you as much as anything else from the activist white nationalist. (laughs) It's time for our final break. This is Invasion by Burning Spear. When we return, Yannick Marshall tells us how MLK is used against our radical imagination. Stay with us. Love in Africa, 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In our final segment with Yannick Marshall, we continue to think about how our imaginations are atrophied by the limited options on offer from left and right, liberal and conservative politics and philosophy, the left and right being two modes of the ruling class. And we close with a challenge to civil rights and black liberalism. So it is one of the things that you kind of have to keep reminding people over and over again. We are in this place. We are in this state of the world. This is the world we have. Um, That is what it is. A liberal colonizing police prison state. And it all happened at the same time. So all your institutions of higher learning, all of your philosophies, Western philosophies come out of this same sort of quote unquote enlightenment space. Yeah, and and so what is what is thrilling conservatives in the boost is that right now they have the best chance, as they can see it all over the world, to be able to put their imprint on the world that they missed out in the 1930s and 1940s. That they have the chance now to, um, with you could see that there are infiltrations in, in German security forces. White nationalism is becoming main uh, mainstreamed in in this colony again. Uh, so George Wallace didn't die. He, he kind of. Uh, found his way back. Tucker Carlson is parroting uh, white nationalism in Zimbabwe and, and South Africa, talking about farmers. So this is a moment that they feel that they're rising and, again, facilitated by a liberal order that has no stronger defense than saying that they're shocked and that they're stunned. And every single attack is, uh, I can't believe this is happening. And I'm not sure that they can't believe this is happening. Every time someone says that they can't believe this is happening, I'm starting to think more and more that what they're doing, and and this sounds like a kind of conspiracy, but what they're doing is they're giving cover for um, uh, the mobilization of of white supremacy. Because at the same time as that there is a Fox News, there is an absolute absence of any type of black radical thought anywhere in the dominant media. Liberals are doing nothing except being uh, shocked because they have faith that when they have enough power to stave off any white um, conservatives that uh, might be interested in their destruction. And, but even if not, that like Con- Candace Owens and, um, and others, they feel that they've, they've hedged their bets. The, the black people will definitely not destroy us, but, um, since we can be making friends in, in the ascendancy of white supremacy, uh, they, might um, be able to, to, to switch sides without too much fuss. So it's clear this white supremacist world is liberal, that it is a, a function of liberalism as much as anything else, or it, it goes hand in hand with capitalism. We could, I guess, say Christianity as well, that liberalism has supported, as an ideology, has supported all these things. So liberalism is white supremacist and conservatism is white supremacist. Right. It is just that there are a, a bickering between how quickly uh, can we move towards the complete uh, absence of uh, resistance that is black life and black existence. Well, you write uh, in Out of Pandemic, Anti-Blackness, A Case for Pan-Africanism. It's a hopeful essay, and I'll, I'll pair it with the um, a little bit you write in To Loot a Revolution, where you talk about imagination. Uh, so in To Loot a Revolution, you, you suggest, and you, you tried to suggest strongly, that policing isn't just you know force, force and violence on bodies. It's, it's, ima- it's policing imagination. It's stopping you from thinking beyond what you see already. And it actually works very hard to give you 
the images and ideas that you think of as imagination when it really actually constricts that uh, that imagination. And then in uh, in the anti-blackness or, or or excuse me, a case for pan-Africanism, you say somewhere between the grandeur of a United States of Africa and the amorphous nature of black Twitter. What virtual pan-Africanism can do is eke out space for non-negrophobic living in a negrophobic world. And I, I, I do think that as one of the chief liberals of the, of the modern period has, has said, um, that hope and change is good, um, <laughs> what revolutionaries and radicals and people that are interested in absolute freedom must do is to, to be honest and open and, uh, to, and dedicated to the revolution that is pessimism, to no longer wait and hope that things will change because that hope is essentially just a, another inversion it's another way of saying that we want to extend the time of, of Black people's destruction. Um, you can say that as hope and change. They both mean the same thing. To wait and to allow the people that are, are interested in doing what they're doing uh, to continue to do what they're doing. Pessimism and, and, and a lack of hope um, is much better. It is the Maroons moving away from the state and, and doing something entirely different rather than hoping that the state will one day um, include them in their uh, institutions of destruction Dispossession. One day, I, I, if I have the chance, I would love to write um, something like a, almost like a glossary of liberal language of violence on policing. Like policing is not just a repression, but it is part of the ideological apparatus itself. Um, and you can see this in the amount of words that liberalism uh, uses. They will say things like, we want to change, or how do we move forward? Or any number of ambiguous, nebulous terms that do not say anything. And or reform is, is, a, is another important one, um, that do not uh, speak or call or do anything except sound good. And in sounding good, it creates and maintains, as liberal is want to do, the this, this status quo, it maintains it. And at the same time, glosses over the extension and the reproduction of the status quo by calling for change. Everything always changes. Things always change. Um, the police business, the institution of the police is always the business of reform. They themselves talk about um, reform or they've always, after every nationalized killing, speak about um, a, a retraining or anti-bias training. These are their property. These are their tools. These are the weapons to further their cause of policing. And liberals parrot it and say that they want change. They want um, hope. The entire imagination is stunted and, and unable to imagine anything different almost deliberately. It is a prison of the imagination that will say that anything other that is specific, that is radical, that is thought through, that is pronouncing and declaring something totally other, all of these things have to be uh, done away with. And the best that we can offer is something that they must know and means nothing, which is um, we want change. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show, The Plantation on Fire, is about liberalism as a white supremacist ideology with guest Yannick Marshall, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College and author of essays on such topics as policing, white settler culture, anti-blackness, and patriotism as racist ideology. Keep thinking again of of just the imagining the the activist white nationalist as necessary to the white supremacist liberal to continue the fear you know to c- continue to create fear in in people of that white activist 
you know, white nationalist activists, the danger of those other terrible white people that we liberals will keep uh, keep you from harm from uh, so that we can uh, keep the status quo, as you say. We need to have those monsters uh, in the police. We need the police monsters so we can decry police monsters. This is what a racket is. Um, you go and say, hey, like you're both on the same team, but one of them says, you don't want this big brother behind me to do anything bad to your, to your shop. Uh, so I will protect you or um, this big brother behind, behind me um, will do something bad. Well, you both conservatives and liberals are interested in the furtherance of the settler colonial state of America. Both of them are interested in the destruction and dispossession. Both of them want to maintain it. Both of them adore it. Both of them love it. Both of them want to ex- expand it and to institute uh, their settler colonial practice everywhere. Both of them are on that same team. The radical is fundamentally different because uh, they dream of something that is not the future of the world as a future of settler colonialism. They think of something that is possible that is absolutely different. And it is the liberals' job to pretend that they are radical so that they can snuff out our dreams and dispose of us and then pretend that we are the good, we are the anti-racist. Anti-racism serves at the pleasure of white power. It is saying, uh, let us move, let us change, let's don't do this. It does not imagine a, a future um, that is not only anti-racist, but moves and flips the world on its back and thinks about some other possibilities that are more sustainable to all life. Yeah, a, re- a reformation that keeps the settler in the same place. I do hope people start to understand that particular um, point. You know, the the there are no two teams. It's one team of white supremacists. Uh, they're liberal and conservative. Uh, radical is something entirely different. I'm not sure how we characterize things right and left in this country, as there is no left necessarily. I'm sure there are pockets of leftism, uh, but one gets lost in those political conversations as well. I like the idea of radical as opposed to left, really. But is there a way? Uh, obviously, you you suggest in a few of your articles to. Uh, to focus on people like Fanon as opposed to Martin Luther King. Uh, But I assume you'd also point to Malcolm X as someone to pay attention to as opposed to a liberal like Martin Luther King. Yeah, definitely. Um, And just on like the right and left, like remember, um, even in the French parliament, the the right and left were both (laughs) in the parliament. Um, (laughs) But the the earth and all that did not sign up to that project. They weren't on on the left side of the parliament. Um, Mm -hmm. The lives that were attacked by the state um, were not um, invited to participate. So even though they have their dad of one person on one side and the other person on the other side. Uh, we do not have to believe that that's the entire dance floor. I always feel saddened uh, by the fact that I have to perform and be clear about my distance from Martin Luther King, to even pretend that I don't know too much about them, because I feel that it's one of the heights of, of modern racism to expect that the only imagination of, of liberty and of freedom I must go through one person, Martin Luther King, who has, as it happens, been entirely possessed by everything from a McDonald's commercial to a white supremacist saying Martin Luther King will be dying in his grave almost every time that I say anything about anything. Uh, they have the property of Martin Luther King. Um, they have been, uh, I have been dispossessed. Even if I had anything to do with Martin Luther King, that has never been um, a history that I can say claim to because it's always been a whipping post uh, for any type of radical dreams of freedom. And so I want to make sure 
just so that they know that there are people in the world that do not have to worship at the altar of Martin Luther King. But because Black freedom has existed in a number of different voices, especially the ones that are not published, especially the ones that did not have a chance to speak or to be known, that that Black freedom should also be counted, that those lives should also matter, that these people should be the tradition or a tradition that I can follow and still be as dedicated, or I would say more so dedicated to black liberation than anybody that has to uh, jump on that sinking ship of civil rights. My dreams do not depend on such a narrow-minded, uninteresting, bland, cliched, uh, nonsensical, illogical dream of the future. I can write better poetry than that. Para transportar a devor Num batuque doido Arrepiao de alegre That's our show. We'll close with Bula para Libertação de África by Carlos Lamerti, which roughly translates to Hungry for African Liberation. Thanks to Yannick Marshall for joining us from Tanzania via Zoom. We'll have links to several of his essays on the web post. And thanks to Rasul Moat for today's music selections. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Sun